0: Sex really is binary, there's no question about it. You're either male or female.
1: I don't think that male and female are are prizes for effort. They're just observations of categories that we are.
0: To me, as a biologist, distinctly weird that people can simply declare I am a woman, though I have a penis.
1: The only sense in which a man can become a woman or a woman can become a man is by saying so. It's a speech utterance.
0: There is peer
1: pressure and even teacher pressure to really go against reality. In this country, we don't have a syllabus for sex ed. There are these external providers who are basically lobby groups that write unbelievably inaccurate materials and then sell them to schools. There are certain parents who would rather have
0: a trans child than a gay child. and Is is that part of the motivation? You've just
1: given no hints as to what this gender thing is. So you look around and you see Barbie and G.I. Joe and, you know, that sort of thing. And you say, well, I don't like Barbie. I might be a boy. It's incredibly regressive.
0: Welcome to the Poetry of Reality podcast. If you're hearing this, it means that you're on the public feed. You get episodes a week late and you hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscribers' feed by going to thepoetryofreality.com and becoming a supporter, with immediate access to each episode and no ads. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing my podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to The Poetry of Reality. I don't have a religion, but I think if I had one, it would be the religion of reality. And it's a pleasure to meet Helen Joyce here, as I haven't met her before. I wanted to meet her ever since reading her wonderful book, Trans, when ideology meets reality. Science is all about reality, and science and reality have come up against some competition, some opposition, and Helen has been in the forefront of fighting against some of this opposition. There's a character in a Kingsley Amis novel, I think, who gets interviewed on television and the interviewer tells him who he is and what he does and how long he's done it. So that's a typical trope of television, to tell the interviewee about herself. But I'm going to ask Helen to introduce herself very briefly.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I work um, a, for a, an advocacy organisation called Sex Matters now, but my background has been rather varied. So when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a dancer and I actually went off to dance school when I left school at 16. And after two years, realised that wasn't a great idea and went and did a, a degree in maths in Trinity College, Dublin. And I stayed and did my master's in Cambridge and my PhD in maths at UCL in London and then spent three years doing postdoc in mathematics before changing course and going into public understanding of maths and science. And then in 2005, I joined The Economist as the education correspondent, and I spent 17 years there doing various jobs, along the way living in Brazil as a foreign correspondent, and then becoming an editor of various sections of the paper, including the international and finance sections. And one fateful day in 2017, the editor sat down beside me at lunch and said, why do the kids keep coming home and saying such and such is trans? And I said, I have no idea. Shall I look into it for you? And my first attempt to find an author, I found somebody who had been through a lot of queer theory and gender studies at university and managed to write three pages about people identifying as male or female, man or woman, without ever mentioning that sex is about reproduction and that the sexes are reproductive roles and that they're evolved categories. And I had to bin that piece. And I ended up writing it myself. And by this time, I realised that there was a lot of very odd stuff happening here. And that turned into my book, which came out in 2021. It is a
0: very odd phenomenon because I'm used to continua wherever I look. I mean, there's tall versus short, fat versus thin, old versus young. All these things are a smooth continuum. The one thing that isn't is sex. I mean, sex really is binary, there's no question about it. You're either male or female, and it's absolutely clear. You can do it on gamete size, you can do it on chromosomes. And so it is, to me as a biologist, distinctly weird that people can simply declare I am a woman though I have a penis. That seems to me to be a strange distortion of language, because we, language is useful as something to express your thoughts clearly. And so I'm bewildered by it, and I was fascinated to read your book, and and I learned a tremendous lot from it. While I'm about it, I could recommend a couple of other books. Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier, about the, particularly focusing on young girls and how they get um, misled. And this one, Material Girls by C- Kathleen Stock. I-, I listened to this on audio, so I don't have a physical copy of the book, so I'm printed out a the cover of it. Helen, what do you think lies behind this odd distortion of reality?
1: So that was basically the question that got me into this in the first place. And, I mean, I've been thinking really almost full-time about this for about five years now, and I don't have a pat answer for you. I think, like a lot of interesting phenomena, it's a lot of things. Um... I would say that when I started to write about it first, I quickly realised that this wasn't treated the same way as anything else, like just asking very obvious questions, like, um, don't you think that if we allow people to self-identify their sex, this will lead to, for example, destroying women's sports or putting rapists in women's jails, people would turn this back on me and say, you think that trans people are predators, or you think that trans people are in bad faith, you're a bigot. And I hadn't experienced this before in, at that point, about 14 years as a journalist.
0: That's a willful misunderstanding. I mean, that, yes,
1: that's... it is. It is willful misunderstanding. And, I mean, I slowly became aware that what we were talking about here was an intensely linguistic movement. Like, there isn't a sense in which a man can become a woman, except linguistically. Like, yes, OK, he can have operations, and people, some people do. Most trans people don't have any operations, don't take any medicine, don't have any genital surgery. But that doesn't change your sex. I mean, the reason the female eunuch is called that is that Germaine Greer was pointing at the way that the man is seen as the full human and the woman is seen as the lacking human. She is a female eunuch. She's a man that you've castrated. But actually, female people aren't male people lacking something you know, or male people lacking something with a little grow bag that you pop a baby out of every now and then. You know, female people are their own category. Female and male are actually very profound categories. They're profound biological, evolved categories. Well, evolutionarily,
0: they have to be. It's it's the gift of giving birth is something that that pervades the... Yes. uh, ..the whole anatomy and physiology and psychology, actually.
1: Exactly, and if you're a mammal, every part of your body is female. Like, earthworms have both parts, you know. But, you know, my hands are female, my jaw is female... Mm. It's not just that I have, you know, I'm a man with a uterus popped in and no penis. But so it was the only sense in which a man can become a woman or a woman can become a man is by saying so. It's a speech utterance. And so I've come to see, I think there are many things happening here. There's things happening in medicine, in politics. But one of the things that's happening is a long run, maybe two or three century move towards seeing categories and classification as inherently oppressive. So people think, you know... Um, you know, heteronormative is a bad thing, or they think that, you know, the traditional family is constraining. And they miss the point that these things often, like when I say evolved, I don't mean like evolutionary biology. I mean that they came to be over significant amounts of time for a reason, and they're supportive as well as constraining. But everything that's structured or categorised or named or classified, that's now seen as something imposed upon people. So somebody like Judith Butler, for example, who's the queer theorist who wrote Gender Trouble, which is kind of the foundational text that academia uses when looking at these issues, says that gender is, a, is a, an imitation for which there is no original, that she doesn't see sex. She says sex is socially constructed and gender is the real thing. And there isn't any foundation for gender. It's just something that's made meaningful by performing it over and over again. Now, I hadn't come across this at university. As I say, I studied mathematics. And uh, you know, I spent my time proving theorems and defining my terms very carefully. So I was blissfully ignorant of the fact that significant numbers of young people are being taught this sort of nonsense. But they come out of it thinking that somebody who says, look, there are two sexes and the sex that you are is the sex that you were conceived as. They think that what you're doing is imposing social roles on them. So I was brought up to think that what was liberatory and what was progressive was to say, well, this little person is a girl. Let's not let her stop. That, let's not let that stop her doing anything. She could be an astronaut. She could well, be president. Quite. I mean,
0: I think we were all sort of... When I, I, I was brought up to think that you could do whatever you wanted to. You, you have the power to, as you said, be an astronaut, be, be whatever you damn well like. And it's as though this trend now is reverting to stereotyped... Girls like pink and boys like blue and boys like playing with Meccano sets and girls like playing with dolls. And and it's a stereotyping which I kind of revolt against. And yet it seems to be increasingly fashionable.
1: Absolutely. And it's worse than just the old-fashioned stereotyping that would have said, look, this child is definitely a boy. And if he doesn't like rugby and so on, well, he's a puffer and let's bully him. It's now saying he's actually a girl. Yes, So, you know, there's the pink and the blue boxes have been uh, restructured and remade and reinforced, and a child who doesn't fit into the one that's for the sex that they were, inverted commas, assigned at birth, we have to pop them into the other one. And if you call them out on this, they say, no, 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 that's gender expression, that's gender roles you're talking about. We're talking about gender identity, which is a sort of posited, innate knowing that you pop into the world with. But nobody pops into the world knowing that sort of thing about themselves. Children learn it from the stereotypes. They self-examine and match themselves against the stereotypes. So now we say to little what you used to call a sissy boy, you know, that little boy now thinks that he's meant to be a girl. And teachers may say that's not what I'm telling him, but it is what they're telling him.
0: Yes, I was very upset to see evidence from your book and others that teachers and doctors perhaps are latching on to a child who expresses the slightest doubt about this and then affirms them as being the opposite gender to their sex.
1: I mean, it's worse than that they latch onto it, they suggest sell it. Yes. You know, these books for two and three and five-year-olds that say you must examine your gender.
0: I've got here a quote from a girl from America, I think she must have been about 12 when she, this happened to her, she was in, she says, I was in a very liberal school. And she says, there was so much peer pressure to either be gay or trans at this school. Basically it felt like you weren't cool if you were heterosexual. This made me even question myself quite a few times, even though I'm heterosexual. I know that this pressure can be real for so many children. Some of them may actually be gay or trans, and I will definitely support them and fight for them in the end. But that's pretty young to be labelling myself in any permanent way, in my opinion. She was a very bright girl. She's actually written books uh, about science for for children. Very, very impressive. And I was really depressed to read her letter that that there is peer pressure and even teacher pressure to really go against reality.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And teachers think that they're being progressive, you know. So in this country, we don't have a syllabus for sex ed, for relationships and sex ed. There's some sort of very vague things that you're meant to cover like the, fact, the facts about sex and gender identity, or the facts about sexual orientation and gender identity, without telling you what those facts are. I don't think there are any facts about gender identity. And so there are these external providers who are basically lobby groups that write unbelievably inaccurate materials and then sell them to schools. So I've seen short videos and they're so nicely made. There's one by um, a guy call, who calls himself Ollie and his sidekick is a balloon and they call themselves Pop and Ollie. And Pop and Ollie, you know, it's very bright and colourful. And they're like, your sex is the best guess that, a doctor had when you were born, they looked at you and guessed. We're guessed, just guessed, guessed. We're waiting for you. Wait a they guess you, your you, sex. You,
0: you had a penis and yet they guessed. Yes.
1: Yeah. They, so they often... A doctor. Yeah. They often conflate this fact that there are people who have differences or disorders of sex development. There's a tiny number of people. I mean, a few people do need investigations Point to... 0.02%. Exactly. Exactly. And even then, you know, mostly they're getting investigated for conditions that don't cast out on their sex. It's just their genitals have not developed normally. So, I mean, probably about half a dozen people a year in this country, in Britain, have their sex assigned at birth. The rest of us, the doctor writes it down. Anyway, so it says, you know, so the doctor guesses your sex, and then when you're old enough, you get the chance to tell everybody what sex you are. Are you male, female, a boy or a girl, or something else in between? And then, and then stars come behind him, and it looks like you're going through the galaxy, and it says, or something else entirely. And we get off this this putative sex spectrum down here. Uh, What are you meant to make of this if you're eight? Like, Quite. first off, that you're very boring if you think that you're a boy or a girl, but also you've just given no hints as to what this gender thing is. So you look around and you see Barbie and G.I. Joe and, you know, that sort of thing. And you say, well, I don't like Barbie. I might be a boy. It's incredibly regressive.
0: Yes. Somewhere in your book, there's a, a story about a, a mother who said, who had eight children and she said, and not a single one of them is boring cis. Is that is that what? what that's she said? right. Yes. So
1: so cis is this very new coinage that's uh, with uh, by analogy with trans. Yes. Because what they don't want is you saying you know real women and trans women or normal women and trans women or actual women and trans women. They want there to be two types of women. So they need a symmetric word to trans, and that is cis.
0: Cis. Yeah. On the
1: same side of. Yes. And so this uh, this woman, I found this quote in an, a closed Facebook group in America for parents of trans kids. Uh, Somebody gave me a password into it and I lurked there for a while and watched. And there were doctors, gender doctors in there, suggest selling treatments, answering questions with extremely inaccurate information, like claiming that science has settled on things that it's not. But mostly what you saw was the parents reinforcing each other's false beliefs. So a new parent will come in and go, hi, you know, my my great little trans boy, which is a girl, you know, she's four. I'm learning so much from her. Sorry, um, I've forgotten which way around I'm having this child. Let's say it's really a girl and this girl says she's a boy, you know, my little trans man's guy I'm learning so much from him but I'm just wondering like I, I'm a bit worried about socially transitioning in case I'm leading him on the path to uh, medicalization and then people will love bomb her and come in and say wow great to have you here with us Love
0: bomb that is what um religious cults do they Love bomb is the phrase I actually use, I think.
1: Yes, that's right. And um, then if you if you step out of line, if at any point you say, well, I'm not going to do yeah, whatever this heretic, thing is,
0: and, you're, you're and
1: you are just going to get piled on and you'll get kicked out. Yeah. And the thing that these people use more than anything else is the emotional blackmail of telling you that if you don't get with the programme, your child will kill themselves.
0: Now, that is appalling because, that, because well, put it another way, the evidence for that had better be damn good, otherwise it is the most appalling blackmail, how good is the evidence? I mean, the evidence that it does lead to suicide?
1: It doesn't. So the important thing to understand is that the reason they say suicide, it's not just that it's emotional blackmail, it's that they're suggesting that you put your child on a pathway that leads to sterility. Because if you put a child on puberty blockers early in puberty, and then you put them on cross-sex hormones, at some point, we don't know exactly when, but maybe at 20 or 21, you've missed your opportunity. Your own sex organs are not going to grow. You are not going to be a person who can conceive or impregnate somebody else. So they're sterilizing children, and the only reason you would ever do that is to save a child's life. So
0: so, so it has to be
1: Yeah, it has to be death. It has to be death or sterility. Yes. So that's why suicide. Now, there are not a lot of children committing suicide, thankfully. It's very, very rare in minors to commit suicide. So that's the first bit of evidence that this is not true. There's an enormous boom in trans identification. There has been no concomitant boom in suicide. Again, thankfully. But there have actually been a few papers that have looked at children who are on the waiting list for gender clinics, and what they have found is that these children, you know, they do have a lot of mental comorbidities, mental health comorbidities. So you are seeing higher rates of depression, anxiety, eating so, so disorders. They,
0: so th- that's there anyway. Isn't it? They're depressed yes. anyway, or or, yes. or bulimic, or, well, or they, something they like they that. Well, they they say
1: or... they say that of course that it's. It's, you know, the stress, the minority stress that's causing these things, but there's no evidence that that's true. Nice. It's at least as probable, and I would say much more probable, that a child who's looking for solutions to feeling miserable and is suggest-sold that if you're trans, you can re- reinvent yourself, you know, you're like a phoenix, you'll rise from the ashes, a new person, all your problems will be left behind. So yes, so it's the suicide rate is, and the self-harm rate is a little higher than it is in the general population, but not out of line for mental health. Yeah. conditions. Yeah. And important to say there is literally no evidence that transitioning the child will, will decrease that risk.
0: Yes. So so it does seem like terrible emotional blackmail. People like you who are standing up about this, mostly women, I suppose, are getting an awful lot of persecution. I think are very brave. And um, J.K. Rowling's very brave. Kathleen Stock's very brave. Uh, Maya Forstatter is
1: very brave. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, it is. Yes, yes. What gives you the courage? I mean, I'd, I don't want to answer for anybody else, although I work with Maya daily, so I sort of see where she comes from in it. Um, and I know Kathleen and I've met Joe Rowling. Uh, it's my privilege to have met her. Um, in my case, I was lucky to work somewhere that has a very collegiate and uh, rigorously intellectual atmosphere, namely The Economist. But even there, of course, there were people who didn't agree that I should be speaking about this, and it was awkward on occasion. I would say, in my case, I was in too deep. I was so far stepped in blood that there was no way back, you know, like I, I, before I knew that this was going to be a problem, I was so far in that I couldn't get back. And then I was quite negative about it. I really felt something very bad was happening. And, you know, all the people who think that something very bad is happening, they'll pick a different bit of it. They'll say it's about free speech, or it's about women's rights, or it's about children's health, or it's about just, you know, basic reality or sanity. And it was all of those things for me. But then I went to an event at which um, some detransitioners were speaking. And this would have been, I think, late 2019. And I found it a profoundly um, upsetting event. So at this one in particular, there were six young women of course, there are boys who transition and detransition too, but this was six young women, all of whom had thought they were boys. And they were all of them lesbians who had been misled by their early gender nonconformity into thinking they must be boys. And they had gone various path- stages down the medical pathway. And one of them, who was 23, was this very articulate young woman who had suffered from anorexia in her teens and at 18 had stumbled upon the idea that she was trying to starve away her curves because she was meant to be a boy. And by 21, she had all her sex organs removed. And was on testosterone. She had no breasts, no uterus, no ovaries. She had a beard, her hair was receding. And by 23, when she still wasn't feeling any better, and she still had an eating disorder, she one day had the thought, how can an operation, namely a hysterectomy, that only a woman can have, turn me into a man? And that bounced her all the way back to, I am a woman, that is just a fact about me. And so I sat there and I listened to these young women. And you know, I have a very soft spot for gay kids. I have a gay son myself. He's never had gender dysphoria, it's important to say that. Uh, He's never had any theory that he's a girl or anything like that. But I have a soft spot for these kids because they're quite non-conforming and, you know, finding their way, finding your way as a teenager is difficult anyway. But for these kids, it's a little bit more difficult because as they're growing up, they're also realising they're different. I mean,
0: how many of these children do you think are just simply gay anyway? And, well, I
1: mean, according to the Tavistock Clinic, which is the UK's main gender identity clinic for children, uh, the great majority of the children they see are same-sex attracted. There's a strong statistical So they could link. have
0: been perfectly happy growing yes. going up as... Yes,
1: so we are turning potentially healthy gay adults into sterile, straight simulacra of the opposite sex.
0: One of the points you make, I think, is that, that there are certain parents who would rather have a trans child and a gay child. And yes. That, is, is that part of the motivation? Y-
1: yeah, and I don't think it's always stated up front... And, you know, some people think that that's very implausible, but I think that they, they don't realise the dynamic in some families and in some c- cultures, as in, you know, local cultures in the school or whatever. It's really hard to be gender non-conforming, like right bone deep gender non-conforming. I don't mean someone like me who's a fairly normal woman but did a PhD in maths. I mean somebody that everything about your style and your taste and the way you move and your interests just really screams you know, camp for your boy, or butch if you're a girl. And you have to have, you have to be let a lot of freedom to be yourself. And not a lot, you know, nothing has to be made of this by the grown ups around you. And if things start to be made about it, you start to question yourself and think like, why am I so different? Like, why am I a boy who only likes the girls? And why am I a girl who only likes the boys? What's wrong with me? And then the thought comes up in your own mind. Was I meant to be a girl? Was I meant to be a boy? We knew this already in about 2000. The research had been done, the papers had been examined. We know that the gender nonconformity comes first in these kids and the gender dysphoria, the distress, is a result of the gender nonconformity and the meaning that is made of that. So if no meaning is made of it, you just grow up and you might be an unusual straight person, but you're quite likely to be gay. But if a lot of meaning is made out of it, you interpret that as being that there's a woman inside or there's a man inside. And then the people around you may think that too. And your parents may find this very hard. Like a man who's always wanted a boy to take to the football and, you know, he he, he can... With the best will in the world, he may fail to not seem disappointed. Yeah. And the same with the mother who wanted a daughter who went to ballet and to go shopping with and so on, and she gets some little rough and tumble character who just wants tree climbing and rugby, you get the impression that you're a big disappointment to your parents and this dynamic can unfold between them both. And what you need is family therapy really, from someone supportive to point this out to you and to guide you gently through. And instead you end up in a gender clinic and they say, Oh, your child's gender identity Ah, you have a little trans boy, you have a little trans girl.
0: In the past, you've just said, well, she's a tomboy and, and, you know.
1: Well, with a girl, you would have. Poor old boys, the boys, they tried to straighten them out. Yes, yes. Horrible, but the girls was much easier. easier You just let them out, tell them to climb some trees and look back when they're 16. Yes,
0: I'm perfectly happy to um, address a trans person by their preferred name and preferred pronouns. I think it's just a matter of politeness, really. What I object to is the insistence that I am a woman. I mean, you're not a woman. You're, you're, I'm perfectly prepared to call you she, if you like, and to call you whatever your preferred name is. But to say I am a woman is a debauching
1: of language, and that's where I draw the line. I've become much more hardline on this, mm-hmm. and I would like not to be. I would, like, I would have started where you are, but what I've learned is that somebody who expects to be called she also expects the words woman and female, and mother, yes. and sister, yes. and daughter. And it's very hard if you give away sexed language to explain why this person cannot in all circumstances be treated as a woman. So often people do this preamble. It it happens to me less now, but two years ago when my book came out, it happened a lot. They would give a preamble to any interview with me in which they said, uh, you know, of course, neither of us is transphobic and we're very happy to use people's names and pronouns and treat you as a woman or treat you as a man. And I started to think, like, what do you mean by treat somebody as a man or a woman? Because we've got rid of all the unjust and un, uh, unjustifiable differences between the sexes and the way we treat people now. Yeah. Uh, we've equalised pension age, you know, my mother had to leave her job when she got married in the Irish civil service because there was a ban on married women. We've got rid of all that stuff. And now treating somebody as a woman means either I just notice that they're a woman in a, in, a, in a space like any other space where it just doesn't actually matter what, spa- what sex people are, or it means we're in a single sex space and they shouldn't be there we'll
0: come on to that in a moment.
1: But if you want to try and explain why you have to use sex-based language, so I have to say the reason this person cannot come in here is because he is a man. Yes. And if I say she, I'm already selling yeah, okay. the farm. Oh, yes. Do you make a distinction between
0: people who've gone through the ordeal of surgery and being castrated or whatever and having their breasts removed or whatever and people who just simply stand up and say, I am a, a woman or I am a man? Um, it, it does seem to me that there's almost a sense you sort of paid your dues if you've subjected yourself to I mean, you're, you're really serious about it, you're really earnest about it, You're uh, no, not just a frivolously standing up and saying, I've decided I'm a woman today, sort of thing.
1: I don't make any distinction because I don't think that being a woman or a man is the sort of thing that you pay a price to be. Yes. It's just a very base yes. fact about okay. you. But more than that, in a space where a man is not supposed to be, I don't know whether he's been castrated or not. I'm telling from his secondary sex features, and they don't change if he's been through yeah. the surgery. But the other reason is that in international human rights law, there can't be any distinction. On the basis of whether the person has been castrated, because it's basic, it's a basic principle that's been uh, adjudicated on now in several courts, is that you can't make something conditional on getting yourself sterilised, because it's human rights abuse to do that. So if you say to people, uh, you, you know, you've paid your dues if you cut the bits off and that'll give you the the reward is that we'll now treat you as a woman or we'll treat you as a man. You are inducing people to go through a really horrific surgery that is a, and to give up oh, yes? something. Yeah. So that cannot be a legal line. No. And then the last thing I'd say is like they paid their dues to whom? like well no, i i mean like to the other people around them you yes, know yes. if you come into a women's space who have you paid your dues no, to you, no, like okay. dues
0: is the wrong phrase but, but no i've heard it before showed, you've shown you're, you're serious about it you've showed, you've shown that you're i mean somebody who let, let's talk about sports for, for a moment somebody who who's a moderately good swimmer as a as a man but kind of mediocre and then suddenly just says i am a woman yes and because he says i'm a woman he's then allowed to go and break all the Records of female swimming. That seems to me to be unserious. You, you, you're just saying you're a, you're you're a woman because you want to say you're a woman. Whereas if you've been if you've been through the surgery,
1: but he's still not a woman. No, no. He, you but, know. but
0: there's a sort of feeling that he really means it. He, he's sincere about it.
1: I mean, I could say I was sincere about being astronaut. It doesn't make me an astronaut. And and the surgery doesn't make any difference to your um, your sporting performance. So if we're protecting what it is to be female in a sports category, which we are, that's how sports categories work. You know, we protect... Under-18s, yeah. yes. over-35s, Paralympians, flyweights. Yeah, yeah. The thing that we're protecting is femaleness. And the fact that a man is very, very serious in wishing to be seen as female doesn't move his category.
0: No, that's true. But, OK, let's take the example of the astronaut that you just mentioned. Just say, I, I'm an astronaut, and obviously not. But if, on the other hand, you've gone through the rigorous training of an astronaut and you've you know, put yourself through all the, all the really rather hard graft to become an astronaut... You've proved you're serious about it.
1: But I've also become an astronaut. So well, that's you, the thing. You might
0: not become, you might be not good enough to become an astronaut, but you but then, tried. I would, then
1: I would not be an astronaut. No, you
0: wouldn't be an astronaut, but you've tried.
1: Yes. I mean, I just, I don't think that male and female are, are prizes for effort. They're just observations of categories that we are. Yes. Okay. I mean, it keeps the numbers down. There's that. Yes. But, um, you know, for a long time, we didn't see trans, like men who identified as trans in women's sports because they did set a surgery rule. And at the time, the surgery was really only done on people in their 40s and older. So you didn't see any prime aged men. And now that it's just a testosterone level is all that many of the sporting bodies require that you lower your testosterone. And I mean, honestly, they can't check that. It's just a it's just a paper rule. It's not a real one. Uh, Younger men can identify as women. And so now we're actually seeing men who are, you know, pretty good athletes and who are then world record breakers as women. Yes. But it's all wrong. Like if we're protecting the female category, then no male advantage belongs to. Yes, in it. If, there's, it's that simple. if if we're
0: going to have separate female athletic competitions at all, then, then yeah. d- And if
1: we don't, then there will be no women who win anything.
0: Yes. I mean, you could say everything's open, you know, just yeah. a human, and you and you go yeah. in for for everything and then as you say, um, w- women wouldn't wouldn't win
1: anything. Yes, maybe gymnastics. But, the, but gymnastics is an interesting example because male and female gymnastics are very different. Like the one thing that women really have an advantage in is flexibility. Yes. Uh, but male, male gymnastics, yes, they're flexible, but mostly they're strong. So they do very different things. They just do different events for the men and women. Neither sex would be any good in the others in gymnastics. See,
0: okay. Yes, OK. Uh, there's a lot in your book about changing rooms, so we better, we better talk about that. Tell us a bit about that.
1: I think another thing that people often give away when they start to think about this is they think, well, you know, I understand that you need female only spaces if they're, say, rape crisis centres or, you know, really specialist services. But they think like, you know, oh, what about public toilets and maybe even changing rooms like have cubicles? And they miss the point that these are sort of mass arrangements for the convenience of the half of humanity that experiences rape at the hands of the other half of humanity that experiences the two most common sex crimes, which are voyeurism and exhibitionism. And are just they're an inclusion measure for women. So the first female public toilets were brought in so that women didn't experience what was called the urine release, which meant that women had to stay near the home because they needed to be able to go. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, women have to take off clothing from the bottom half of them to go to the toilet. Men Mm -hmm. don't. You're quite vulnerable when you're weeing. And so women in the Victorian era, like, would have to always be able to be aware that there was somewhere they could go to wee. Otherwise, they could get assaulted. And it was the the factory girls, actually, who campaigned for the first public toilets. And because they were were getting sexually assaulted if they tried to wee during a factory day, they weren't able to to work outside the home. And then you think, like, all the special situations that women need, just, just ordinary spaces like toilets and changing rooms for, like women menstruate. As I said, women take off more of their clothes to go to the toilet. We take much longer. Uh, Young girls in particular, like little girls, are at risk. Like if 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 you're a man who's out with your daughter, who's six, seven, eight, nine, and you want to send her to the toilet, you want to be able to pop her into the women's loos and know that there's only women in there, because she's really at risk, actually, if it's a mixed sex space. Then there's Muslim women, and there's women who have been ra- who, are, who are survivors of sexual assault and who can have really serious flashbacks in enclosed spaces if there are males there with them. And now we're losing all of these spaces. They're either going gender neutral or they're going self-ID. Like they'll put a sign up saying, you know, use whichever space you feel most comfortable in. And about a year ago at Sex Matters, where I work with Maya Forstater now, we put out a call for evidence as to why people cared about single-sex spaces. And we did hear stories about specialist spaces like rape crisis centres, but mostly we heard about toilets and changing rooms. And this phrase got said over and over again. People wrote us almost essays about it. They said, you know, I went along to my local swimming pool, And there's a bloke who calls himself a woman who's now using the changing room. And I've never told anybody. I'm in my 50s now, but I was raped when I was 14 and I never told anybody. And I found myself in this enclosed space and I looked around and there was this bloke and I froze and I remembered everything terrible that had happened to me and I left and I never went back. So women are being pushed out of public spaces again by the loss of these spaces that were introduced in order that we could play a full part in public life.
0: You were telling me... Uh, before we started, uh, which I didn't know, that um, competitive swimmers, Olympic-type swimmers, have to wriggle into their streamlined swimsuits. And so they aren't just sort of...
1: Quickly put put it on the, the way the rest of us do. It take how long does it take? Like it can take up to forty minutes. So I didn't know this when I wrote the book, or I would have put it in. So at the time I was writing the book, um, there were a few athletes who were making it into elite women's sport who were men. So Laurel Hubbard was the big example at the time, who's a weightlifter, a New Zealand weightlifter, a man in his forties. But in between the hardback and the paperback, along came Leah or Will Thomas, who's a young man who's six foot four, who's about 21, 22 and who started swimming in American college races and i mean it's bad enough when you look like you see people in their swimsuits you can see who's a man and who's a woman and he's really towering over the women and he doesn't have good technique you know he's just using his shoulder strength and not even kicking his legs and he still wins and then i heard one of the young women who had to compete against him describing what it is like doing competitive swimming so they wear these streamlined suits and the, the sort of, they're the compression suits that, like, just make you very um, cut through the water fast. And it's very, very hard to get on. And the compression doesn't last all that long, so you change suit every time you race. And you also don't wear that suit when you're doing your warm-up. And there's dozens of events, you know, all the different lengths and strokes. And there maybe many competitors in all of them. They're these big, open changing rooms. And you're running in, you strip completely naked, you put on your practice suit, you go out, you do your warm-up, you come back in, you strip completely naked again. And then you start this miserable business of shimmying into your race suit, which is incredibly tight. And you have to sort of wriggle and bounce and wriggle and bounce and get it up over your hips and then wriggle and bounce yourself in completely naked through all of this. And all around you, everyone else is doing the same thing. And there's this six foot four bloke. And in case anyone wants to know, no, he has not had surgery and no, there are not cubicles and no, you cannot hold a towel in your way. And that's what you're doing. And these poor girls, like the girls on his own team at the university that he's at, but all the women who had to compete against him, if they complained, they were told that they were bigots. Uh, Riley Gaines, who's the one of them who's spoken out the most, was warned by her university that if she kept talking about it, she would not be taken on to medical school.
0: Told she's a bigot by somebody senior in, in the university.
1: Yeah, by, this, by the sports team, by the EDI team in the university, EDI meaning equity, diversity and inclusion, told that they'll be referred for counselling the women of the university uh, that where we're, um, Leah Thomas is, I think it's University of Pennsylvania. The girl's on his own team because they complained anonymously and they, they finally found someone to send their complaints and they were told they would be re- referred for counselling to learn to cope with their transphobia, so they, to cope with losing, basically.
0: I'm baffled by why this is also one-sided. I, I realise there are two different points of view here, but how has one side managed to kind of capture the dominant dialogue, really, the dominant half of the dialogue? Yeah. Um, and constantly it comes up that you if you dissent from that you're called a bigot, and so people don't want to dissent because dissent. um, So I don't want to call it cowardice, but it's pardonable cowardice because nobody wants to be called a bigot. But why does all the abuse go one way? Why does it, why is it such a, why does all the bullying go one way?
1: I mean, there are so many different answers to that. And, you know, like, I think they all reinforce each other. And one of them is because this is a linguistic movement and there is no sense in which Leah Thomas is a woman except that you say he is, you must silence people. It's the only way in which you can keep the fiction going. If people can say what they see in front only of them... The only way
0: in which he can keep the fiction going, but why does he have these abettors and accomplices yes, who... Yes, yes. Who, um...
1: I mean, you can't ignore the fact that this is for the benefit of men. You know, like, female sports has always been fifth rate, like it gets much less funding. These girls are told, they're told things that nobody would tell a male athlete, like that, you know, it's for the joy of taking part. Mm. Why do you care about winning? I think in America, it's become so associated with the very, very polarized political system. So, you know, the and, and everyone, everyone tends to take their political opinions as a package. That's not a, an American... Um, fought solely. But in America, it's so polarised that they're really very specific packages. And if you want not to take the, the opinion that gender identity trumps sex, then you're a Republican. You have to be a conservative Christian. You have to be anti-abortion. You have to think that women belong in the yes. kitchen, you know. And so if you don't want those things, well, you've got to come over here and give up women's sports and say that men can be women and say that, you know, there can be a female penis and so on. And then, I mean... There's a sort of an evolutionary point to make here, like sometimes when you look at a giraffe or a platypus or something and you say, how did this come to be? You could answer that by sort of going back, I and mean, I think you did this in your beautiful book. Um, which one was it? The the one where you go back in the, the tree of life backwards, quite thick one. Oh,
0: the ancestors tale. That's
1: lovely. Yes, that book. So you can go back and you can you can actually answer that question, or you can just say, look, that's how evolution works. So we have this is an emerging ideology. Some would say neo religion. And out of the many many bizarre things that people could believe, this is the one that made it. And you could then point at you know the internet. The arrival of sex change surgery, the fact that we're all online too much, uh, social media places where kids congregate without adults and talk to each other without adult oversight, the cowardice of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, which is a dreadfully corrupt organisation. I mean, you know, it allowed the cheating by the East German women dopers to go on in in full sight for 20 years and has never sorted that out and never taken the medals away from them you know they just don't care the show keeps on the road as far as they're concerned so there's just all these different things that happened and you know the result is what we see as opposed to me being able to say I would have been able to predict this in advance I'd never predicted the platypus either
0: Yes, the platypus wasn't believed when it was first sent to the museum. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, exactly. So this is a platypus in a way.
0: Yes. Is there a tension between we, we, the LGBT? Yes. Um, is the T a little bit more? I mean, is there some opposition between the LGB on the one hand and the T on the other? On the other hand,
1: I mean, depends who you ask and depends what you think these are. If you think these are identities, and especially if you think in American identities, so in 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 the American way of thinking, there is the you know the white supremacist the the cishet white male who runs the world and everybody else is oppressed by that person, and the more ways in which you're oppressed, kind of the better in this culture, then LGBTQIA++, you know, all of those things are, you know, you're not cishet. Yes. Meaning cis and heterosexual. On the other hand, if you actually just think that LGB is a shorthand for people who aren't heterosexual, that people who are either homosexual or bisexual and you understand those as people who have unusual sexualities which you know has been until very recently a major reason that people have been oppressed like as in sent to jail given electric shocks cast out by their families like really bad things then what the hell is tea doing in there yes. like tea, tea is an identity it's not a sexuality and more than that tea is a an identity that undermines the very basis of sexuality because if you're trans you move category or in your mind you move category from male to female and that means you change sexuality as well so a straight man becomes a lesbian yes you know? and that's not very much what most lesbians find very helpful for their
0: no i mean there's tension Le- lesbians do feel threatened i think don't don't they absolutely
1: yes. yes i mean you could it works both ways like like a lot of things to do with sex you know formally it works both ways like a woman who identifies as a man, like a straight woman who identifies as a man, becomes a gay man. And this is increasingly popular among teenage girls, to identify as gay men. I think they're not going to have much success when they get older. It's not going to go very well, because that's not how gay culture works. But the other way around, you've got men who are bigger, stronger, more sexually aggressive... You know, lesbians are the people who've always found it hardest to keep their footing in the alphabet soup. Like, I have a lot of lesbian friends now doing this work. And they'll tell you that the LGB groupings never paid attention to their needs. They paid attention to gay men's needs. And so now a lesbian-only group will often find, or usually find itself under pressure, to admit heterosexual men who think of themselves as lesbians. And then when you add to that the fact that there's a very common male uh, sexual interest, a fetish, in cross-dressing. And that there are significant numbers of men who find it very sexy to think of themselves as lesbians. Probably as many of those as there are actual lesbians. You're like, well, you know, these people come into your spaces and now it's not a lesbian space anymore.
0: Yes. One thing that really pisses me off, it it came up a moment ago, is that I've been politically on the left all my life and I find myself now being blamed somehow. I find that people think I must be right wing because the only people who agree with me about this tend to be politically
1: on the right. That's not really true, but they often think it is. I mean, it, do you find that? I mean, there's a very significant movement here in the UK on the left of the women who came up through the unions and who you know, are very good organisers who are sex realists. And so I think here in the UK, it's really easy to say, oh, look at Woman's Place UK. I mean, JK Rowling, look at her. She's not yes. exactly right wing. So... You know, it is often said, but it's an American thing to say. It's because of the American polarization and it's part yes, of the Americanization everywhere. that's right. It's a, it's everywhere. I should have
0: said that, That's American. Oh, but
1: it gets said to us too. I mean, yes. I get told that I'm funded by the Heritage Foundation, you know, that I'm yes. getting money from shadowy right-wing American groups. I'm not... You know, it's it's a joke among the women, my you know, that I work with. You know, people are always saying, "Have you got any of your far right money yet?" It must be stuck in the post. You know, no, we haven't. We don't get funding from them. It is very irritating, and I I suppose I find it less irritating because I never thought of myself as either left or right wing. I wasn't even a left wing student polit- politician. I'm um, I've always been a very include me out person. Like I've I've voted for every party, every every one of the three main parties here. Mm. Honestly, don't know who I could vote for now. But you will find that in this. In this movement, the the people who are willing to speak on this issue um, are often people who have been through some crucible beforehand. And those can be good, bad or indifferent things as far as I'm concerned. Lots of Brexiteers, lots of anti-vaxxers, lots of evangelical Christians, people who have had some formative experience like, I think, probably you sticking with atheist rationalism while the new atheist movement degenerated into gender woo. Mm -hmm. You know, you've already been cast out in some way. And if you've already been cast out, well, you've got used to it. You know what it's like and you know that you can survive it. And so I, I do see a lot of very varied people who have already experienced being cast out.
0: Well, we'd probably better come to a close. Would you like to tell us a bit about your organisation, Sex Matters, as we as we close?
1: Sure. So anyone who's read my book will have uh, met Maya Forstatter, who is the person I shape the chapter about Britain, otherwise known as Turf Island, around Turf being trans-exclusionary radical feminist, and it's what we get called for believing that sex is real.
0: Yes, do, do tell Maya's story, we, we, we yes. ought, to, ought to hear that.
1: So Maya worked for, she was a specialist in tax, international tax flows and development, and she worked for a think tank called the Centre for Global Development, which is based in Washington, and they had a, an arm based in London. And at the time, in 2017, the government was thinking of changing the law to allow for gender self-ID, meaning that you would be able to get a new birth certificate stating whichever sex you liked just by asking. Obviously insane when you put it like that. But anyway, they were about to do it. And Maya thought, but in development, sex is actually a really important variable. So you know, maybe we should talk about this. Maybe we should talk about our gender self-ID destroys the basis on which we do a lot of the work that we do. And that was fine initially with her colleagues in London, but colleagues in America, because all of this gender stuff comes from America. Yeah, like everything else. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We live in America now, all of us. Uh, they complained and said she was transphobic and to cut a long story short, she lost her job. So she went to the employment tribunal and she lost a bit about, what, uh, end of 2019, that must have been. No, end of 2020. As the book was, you know, as I was writing the book, And in the employment tribunal, the judge, James Taylor, said that her belief that there are two sexes, the sexes are immutable, and sometimes recognising that is important for women's rights. That's her belief. That was not worthy of respect in a democratic society. And so she deserved to lose her job. And I mean, the way that the law is written, it's not just deserved to lose her job. It would mean that anyone could discriminate against her at will. They could turn her away from a bar. They could refuse to ever employ her anywhere, provide her with any services, because this is the law that protects us against discrimination in employment and and provision of goods and services. What he was saying was that she was a Nazi. She was literally, literally equivalent to being a Nazi or somebody who says, we want to bring back slavery. So I knew Maya by this point, and she's a very brave woman, um, and very, very dogged. So she had to go to the Employment Appeal Tribunal, which the original ruling was overturned in its entirety. I mean, the judge just didn't know what he was talking about. And that set precedent. So now the belief that sex is binary, immutable, and that matters is a protected belief in UK employment and provision of services. As a result of precedent. Yes, mm. that precedent is set. So now in a workplace, mm. if you say, I think we need to have men's and women's toilets, because there are two sexes and women need them, they can't say, you bigot? Okay.
0: I've just found in, in your book, the, the questions that the lawyer on behalf of the company that got rid of her asked, On what basis did she think male people couldn't become female? Could she name philosophers who agreed with her? I couldn't... Why philosophers? What have they got to do with this? Biologists, you want to ask? How could she know someone's sex if she hadn't been present at their birth? Doctors assign sex by looking at newborns and using guesswork.
1: So she had to answer all of those things under oath. And um, the reason it's a philosophy is because the protected characteristic in the Equality Act is religion or belief. And she was claiming a belief. You yes, can't okay. just protect facts.
0: Yes. I mean, it does. Say, uh, at, which, at which the room packed with women, supported, erupted in laughter. I'm not surprised it erupted in laughter. Yes,
1: and then mm. after all of that, Judge Taylor mm. said that you know her belief yeah. was a novel belief that was not protected because yes. it was too harmful to other people's yes. rights. So anyway, Maya set up with some lawyers, including um, her barrister Anya Palmer. This organisation, Sex Matters, and I left the Economist to go and work for it because honestly, I feel in some ways that this is you know a generation defining battle actually because mm-hmm. it's a battle against reality as you said also against free speech against women's rights against gay people's rights and it's a battle to keep children from being indoctrinated because children are being lied to all of them they're being lied to about their bodies about human nature about sexuality and they're being misled all of them and for some of them that's leading them to that's, what, to b- that's what
0: bothers me most i must yeah, say me too well thank you very much helen once again helen's book is trans when ideology meets reality Thank you very much indeed.
1: Well, thank you for having me on.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Poetry of Reality. You might consider subscribing on thepoetryofreality.com. That way you get the content without the ads. Anyway, thank you for listening and see you next time.